Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today, we're going to talk about how long should you keep a client? Got a bunch of interesting angles here. (laughs) (laughs) A day or forever? Yes, as long as possible. Um, I'm sure some people are thinking that. So this is a this is a wild topic, and when when Rochelle, when you first brought it up, I immediately had uh, a gut reaction based on my experience of of what my answer to that question was. How long should you keep a client? And, and my immediate reaction is like not too long. Uh, <laughs> but then we talked about it a little more before the show, and and it occurred to me that that's not my advice in that area. Wouldn't be just sort of it's probably not just general good consulting advice. It's probably because of the way my consulting business is set up and the way that I price things and the business model that I have and the kind of services I offer mm-hmm. and that there are other kinds of consulting or advisory businesses that it, it makes a lot of sense to have a really a career long or lifelong client. So yeah, so that seemed like something fun to talk about. Yeah. And I think we have different experiences with this too, which will be fun to talk about. Well, yeah. Like you want to talk about being inside of a big consulting firm and and their sort of attitude about it? Yeah. It's, you know, I was trained and, you know, I grew up inside a big consulting firm and it, it was a consulting firm that did uh, human resources and change. And so everything Every single thing was oriented around keeping clients for life. It was, you want to keep a client happy. Losing a client for almost any reason was very bad. Very, very bad. And so I, I remember, uh, you know, reading a book about it and clients for life. And, you know, we talked about what that really means. And it, it wasn't until I left the big firm that I started to think, oh, Maybe that's just one way to do it. Maybe that's not the only way. Yeah, that's that's the exact reaction I just had, but from a different standpoint. So Mm -hmm. my experience is that I look for clients or I try to attract clients who see me as a peer, not as a pair of hands, not as an employee. And that means that, you know, we're in a partnership, not technically in a partnership, but it's that kind of relationship where I need to feel a hundred percent comfortable, you know, calling them on BS, telling them no, you know, recommending that, you know, basically saying the emperor has no clothes, but that's why they hire me. Right. Right. So when somebody wants the truth, they reach for me. And that means saying things that are going to ruffle feathers and it gets complicated in, in a larger organization because, you know, so, so not everyone decided to hire me. And if I, it's, if it's my role to tell it like it is to people who didn't even have a decision in bringing me in, uh, it's a delicate situation. And uh, from my, my pricing standpoint, since I don't bill hourly, which I'm assuming when you were inside of a big consulting firm, they build hourly. Uh, since I don't do that, the amount of time that I'm in, engaged doesn't really matter to me. You know, at least in a financial, I don't have a, let's put it like this. I don't have a financial incentive really to increase the amount of time I'm engaged with a client. Mm -hmm. So really my value and therefore my price goes down the longer I'm engaged. And there is like a a tipping point. So, you know, a, a great, I think somewhere around six months to a year is a, is about the sweet spot. And then after that, it's diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. So for something like my advisory retainer, which is a monthly thing, it's not, you know, it, in a sense, it's uh, it's like paying for an insurance policy. So you've got some 
risky endeavor going on. Uh, you're making some big technical change, usually related to mobile. People would bring me in to kind of uh, advise them on the strategy at first, come up with a plan, uh, plan of action, maybe a migration strategy, depending on the situation, and then oversight of the implementation team while it's going on and stuff like that. It, in my world, it's only tends to take between like six to 12 months. And I, 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 I patting myself on the back, but I tend to provide a lot of value in that phase. And after that, once you're kind of in maintenance mode or after launch or after the bugs are all shaken out, it's really like they trust me and we feel like we're highly engaged, but really it's not worth it to keep paying me after that. So I, I either quit or um, I fire them or they fire me or we just agree that, okay, we're, we're done here. We'll call you if we need anything. So for me, uh, client engagements probably average around a year. And after that, it's it just makes no sense for anybody to continue. Well, because as I'm listening to you, Jonathan, it's like what you're describing is you're leading a change effort, or at least you're, you're, if you're not leading it, you're, you're in it, right? You're partnering mm -hmm. with your client to get them through that change. So you could argue there's a beginning, a middle and an end, um, but the end isn't quite so finite as you described. I mean, sometimes it'll linger, right? Sometimes it doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it also sounds like you've designed this around the way you like to work, which is you're going to be the truth teller. You're going to help them get through change. So almost by definition, because you're working for the top of the house and not everybody's going to agree with you, your head's going to be on the chopping block at some point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. There's plenty of people who want me out of there. <laughs> Well, but it, it also, I mean, I think that you, you hit on this point and it's also the way you like to work. So you've structured a business the way you want to work, which is one of the things we've been talking about in this podcast. I mean, that's, that's the ideal. That's the holy grail. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I would think that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you've got a business model that's around um, making change and making it happen quickly um, in in maybe a bet the business example, maybe not, but something that's that's that has strategic imperative, then you know a client for life isn't really in the cards, right? Right. Yeah, it would be. So the the thing that's very different, it, I want to kind of caveat this. The thing that's very different about my air quotes firm or my practice is that I have no employees and I don't do implementation. Mm -hmm. So if I did have that, then it would there would be a, a follow-on, an obvious follow-on phase where I would throw, you know, throw them a few bodies to either maintain the system that was just launched or migrated or whatever. And 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 me personally wouldn't be involved that much. And I would be making some sort of money off of the the longer term uh, the maintenance of the thing, or if, or if I had a team that did the implementation too. So it gets back to, uh, what Blair, we talked about with Blair on episode eight with the, about the four phases of the client engagement where there's two, you know, a diagnostic and prescriptive phase at the beginning. And then there's a therapy and a reapplication of therapy. And the first two phases are a think, are thinking work. And the second two phases are like labor work or hands work. And so brains work and hands work. And, and I don't, get involved with hands work mm -hmm. anymore. I used to, but I don't anymore. If, if I did do that though, and I know plenty of people who do, that can be a, a really good source of stable 
long-term revenue, as long as you're not just engaged with like one whale client, which is very risky. But in general, if you've got a few clients and you're doing these sort of long-term implementations where you're basically doing providing bodies for staff augmentation, then okay, you know, but to me, that's not, that's not really expertise. You're not selling expertise at that point. You're, you're just, you know, preventing them from, or you're allowing them to not hire internally for positions that they probably should. Well, I might, I might argue with you a little bit. I think that's still selling expertise. It's a different level of expertise and the market probably doesn't value it as highly, nor, 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 Potentially, nor should it, because it's a lot of bodies, and so the, the the total cost might be huge, but the cost of any one individual participant in the project might be small. You know what I'm saying? It's that's true. Yeah, it's Im- implementation is still. I can see designing a consulting firm or practice or even a one person business around implementation, provided you're not just following the direction of the client but you're actually consulting. You've got a process. You show them how to do the implementation. Um, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I totally, you're right. It's, I'm just saying from my standpoint, it's not for me. Yeah, so yeah. like lots of people, I have tons of students who do that and tons of students who give away the, or when they come to me anyway, they give away the strategic pieces in order to <laughs> land the implementation. <laughs> work. And we've talked about that. Oh before, yeah. But, oh yeah. Uh, so Anyway, so I think, so for me, you know, in terms of, to bring it back to how long should you keep a client, for me, when it gets over a year, and I've had, I think, two exceptions to this in 10 or 12 years, where it goes beyond a year or two, and there's some good reason, there's some exception, there's there's become a really close bond or become heavily integrated into the organization and it's just it's just continued to be a mutually profitable relationship for you know against all odds uh and then i'll stick around i don't have you know i don't have some guillotine that falls at the 24 month mark because each each engagement is unique Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah Well, you know, it's it's funny. I was thinking when when I left the you know the big firm that I grew up in and, and started um, my first firm, you know, with a partner, and and you know we actually hired people, so it was it was a firm. Um, our biggest, most important client was our second client it was a CEO, and she kept making deals, and she brought me into every one of her acquired companies to work with her teams. And so what was interesting is we would have these, we would have like a year where we had huge revenue. And then the next year we'd have very little because they were absorbing the deal. And then the year after they'd make another deal. And later when we sold the firm uh, to Arthur Anderson, I can still remember sitting down with a lead partner and they looked at our financials and they said, yeah, but you have these big projects and then that same client gives you nothing the next year because they were looking at recurring revenue. And so I explained to them how it worked. And we had a long enough history that, you know, you could see it. But it's not it's it's just not natural for some people to look at a business and say, oh, strategic projects where clients don't last can make a good business. But we know it can. It is hard because you have to. Yeah, it, it's hard because you have to be attracting lots of of leads. Mm-hmm. It, it, you really, you know, it's tricky. You have to keep getting new clients. So in my world, since I build based on the value and I attract large enough clients that I can set my fees pretty high, the what would be a famine cycle for someone who charged less is no big deal for me. 
because the amount of time that I put into a given engagement, uh, it doesn't correspond to how much profit I make from it. You know yeah. what I mean? So it, it's, so for people listening, when you, you've decoupled time from profit. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't mean that I'm busy. I, I actually have been fairly steady for years, but, uh, it doesn't really, it, I don't think about it really. I don't think about the feast famine cycle because my margins, the reason people get into a feast famine cycle is because they've got, it, and why it bothers them is because their cash flow is low, which is probably because their margins are too low and they can't either sock away money or, or spend the time needed to do marketing to attract new clients. So I don't know. So you look at, I, I, I can picture the graph of like, Oh, look, you know, whatever 2014 was like huge and then 2015 was you know you acquired no new clients or the existing clients didn't give you any more business and like you said you're like yeah that's the way it should. <laughs> but it's scary i can imagine someone trying to buy that business is like well that's not it's tough to value that because it's not predictable right well and and the the case i made was if you line it up in a chart and you look at the same client it is predictable you know, from a client perspective, but yeah, there, there'd be a big project one year, then nothing, then a big project because we didn't do implementation. We did strategy and we right. lived for strategy. Yeah. So you only need that sort of stuff. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, I, I mean, you and I are a lot alike that way. It's like, it's the implementation isn't as interesting, um, but it's still a viable business model that works for a lot of people. There's nothing wrong with having an implementation model. It's just what fits for your business model. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know about you, Jonathan, maybe you just sideswipe this entirely. But for me, um, especially um, in my subsequent businesses, I struggle sometimes with that client for life question, because there's a part of me that feels like I've got to serve that client. And I'm not going to say no matter what, because you know, I'm not a glutton for punishment, but I really feel it's like in my DNA to find a way to somehow help them. And sometimes, you know, what I've learned the hard way is that the best way you can help a client and yourself is by saying goodbye. Nodding hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I bet everybody listening to this is going, oh, yeah, remember client A, B, C, D. I mean, you know, we all have our horror stories. Yeah. One of the one of the problems I've seen when you do have a, a really long term client engagement you know, I, I'm thinking of one person who has had this, who's hourly billing, freelancer, copywriter type of person, uh, good at her job, super personable. She has literally worked for the same client for 17 years Wow! as a freelancer. I'm like, that's, you're an employee. I mean, you're, that's your job. And I mean, yes, there's a difference technically, but basically that's what it is. And I'm not saying it's bad or good. But you don't really have any of the, the, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like she has any of the lifestyle or the business of someone who's actually a freelancer. Maybe I'm being a little bit pedantic. But when I've had engagements that, in my opinion, went on too long, because you don't notice mm -hmm. it at first. All of a sudden, you're like, you know what, I'm flying down to this engagement. And I don't really, I could send, like, they could get 10 other, I can think of 10 people that they could get for this because we're, you know, we're so far into it, all the really risky, complicated stuff that I'm actually good at is over. Like my area of expertise is over. And now they, they're just like, I'm kind of technical. They need some technical advice about something. I'm going to have a smart opinion about it, but it's not my mm -hmm. area. You know, it's not my, not where I've gone deep. So I'll be flying to a thing and I'm like, it suddenly it'll hit me. And I'm like, I, I am not 
worth what they're paying me. Like they're not going to get positive ROI out of this. They really should have hired a CTO six months ago. Mm. So, you know, because it's, because it's at that phase where they just need lots of little things and they get, there's this weird sort of dependency that gets created that to me is a turnoff to other people. It might be like, sweet, they're, they're going to keep paying me forever. But to me, it's, I don't feel like, uh, I'm adding value. I suppose that my other option could be, I could, you know, reduce my fee, but why would I do that? I'd rather find a different client who's going to pay me way more, you know? So, uh, there's this weird thing where they start to treat you like an employee and the power frame shifts Uh and they start just giving you stuff to do because like, well, we're paying this guy like five figures a month to, you know, sit on his hands. We might as well give him something to do. And you start getting basically not grunt work, but you start getting stuff that's outside yep. your area. And you feel like you have to do it because they're paying you. Right. And it's like, uh, yeah, because you're feeling like, oh, I haven't been delivering a lot of value. And they get, they want me to do this. I'll just do it. And then after a few months of that, you're like, wait a second, <laughs> what am I doing? Yep. And that's when you say, listen, you know, I think it might be time for us to part ways. Uh, I don't feel like I'm delivering a lot of value, you know. Hopefully you'll think of me in the future when you have another big project or you're in a situation like this. But, you know, now let's talk about sort of offboarding you, kind of like trans, trans, uh, uh, migrating them over to some other solution that's more appropriate to the current situation that they're in. And usually that's like you need to hire a CTO. Mm-hmm. Like it's finally time. But what a powerful conversation if you think about it because – Yeah, it's awkward. Well, I know it feels awkward, but when you think about it, I I would think you've got a high percentage of clients who, after the fact, after the conversation, are appreciative because it is their money. And to have you come to them before they come to you with the same observation, I just think that builds trust. It builds partnership. Yeah, I, I, I can see that that's a very powerful conversation to have with a client. Yeah, and they do sometimes come back. You know, sometimes like they do have a new initiative. Uh, it hasn't happened to me too many times because a lot of the stuff we've worked on is like 10 year platform type stuff. Like they're making a huge change in their business. Like, you know, they're going from, they're becoming a mobile first business and it is a gigantic change that touches the entire organization. But once they do it, yeah. then I'm going to do it again. But, but what a powerful source of referrals though. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, I was sort of thinking about this and when you describe the the copywriter person, it's like, I think of this as when you can become a trusted advisor, and I, I don't use that term lightly, but a true trusted advisor where where they come to you for certain kinds of high level, strategic, Beth the business, or, or for your technical expertise, where they come to you for that. I, I think that's, I keep using the word powerful, but I, I just, I think that there's a place for that kind of relationship and that that can last a long time if if sort of they're the right client for your style, if you can, you know, find that way of, of working. And a lot of people like that will think nothing of putting you on retainer just to be able to call you. Yes, yeah. that's absolutely true. Yeah. I approve of that. Another, th- another thing that happens that uh, it didn't occur to me till just now, but I, is probably an important distinction is that in the long term, a lot of the employees that you worked with will go to other companies and bring mm-hmm. you in there. So it's different clients, but it's lifelong relationships. I, I have plenty of lifelong relationships from work, but not with the client company per se, but yes, with the, 
with an individual who was a a key player. Yeah. I I was thinking about that when we were getting ready for this call. I have a a client that I've worked on and off with for over 20 years and we might go years without working with each other. And then she'll call me or she'll give my name to somebody. And I mean, we're friends. It's become a friendship. It's we've, you know, we've been able to, to craft this really wonderful friendship that, that goes back and forth in business. But I mean, I love those relationships. And, you know, when you're a solo, you live and die on those relationships or you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important. That stuff's important. Yeah. So it's like, you don't want to, it's, well, let's change gears a tiny bit because you mentioned something before the show, because I feel like we're talking about um, mostly like, oh, Clint, you shouldn't keep them for too long. But you did have an example before the show about a type of business that it does make a lot of sense to have a client for life for, for both parties. And I, I think it was, uh, I think you said oh, wealth yeah. managers. Certain kinds of financial advisors. I mean, a lot of those, and I, you know, I've served some of them as clients, but I, I know a lot of them as well. And their holy grail is a client for life. And they will often serve the next generation because a lot of times they get a client that's sort of at the same stage in life as they are, you know, so if you're in your twenties and then your thirties and then your forties, and then eventually um, you become older, your clients become older, their kids grow up, sometimes their grandkids grow up or the clients die and then they serve the surviving spouse and the surviving children. So there's, it's, it's almost hardwired in a lot of wealth managers to, to focus on on clients for life that that would absolutely be where they want to go. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I was just, I was just in a, I was just in a forum with this in, with someone who's in this exact situation. He's having a pricing problem, which is why he re- reached out to me. So you had this, this client who was, I think by any regard, super successful financially. And he felt like he had a lot to do with that, that, you know, this, this financial advisor and the, the, the way he ran his business is very different than the way I run my business because he basically takes a commission of some mm-hmm. sort. So I don't know exactly what the percentage was based on if it was if it was portfolio growth or, or what. I have no idea, but it was a percentage. So as the as the client became more successful or as the as his money grew, whatever that in whatever way was meaningful, the the financial advisor got paid mm-hmm. more and the client, even though they had been working together for years and, you know, decades, the client started to resent the absolute uh, dollar amount. Mm. You know, it was something, I think, I think the number was something like $65,000 for Q1 or something like that. Okay. Cause this, the client right. was rich. So he's, he, but he started to, uh, the client started to be like, wait a second, that's a lot of money. And the financial advisor was from the standpoint of like, it's the same, you know, he's kind of like commiserating. It's like the same percentage we've always had. The reason that's a lot of money or it's the reason that number is increasing is because what I'm doing is working and he's all been out of joint and he, it it got really complicated. It got, you know, because I made some suggestions. He's like, I can't say that he'll blow up. And And before you knew it, we were into a conversation 100% 100% about the nature of the relationship between the two people and nothing yeah. to do with the pricing. Yeah. And, and again, well, this kind of reminds me of, of, you know, the, 
you have relationships for life kind of thing. In this case, it just happened to be that the relationship was both personal and professional. And it kind of ended up, you know, the, it was me and a, a few other people were kind of piling in to, to make suggestions. And eventually it turned out that the, um, the guy kind of needed a mediator. It was almost like a mm-hmm. marriage counseling situation. Yeah. And, and we're like, look, you need to put your cards on the table, explain how you feel, tell him, you know, blah, 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 the whole thing. Just like have a, have a very transparent and sort of straightforward conversation, which he did and it worked. <laughs> But the the reason for telling that story is because that's not that's not the way my business is set up at all. Like, but I could see, and I think that my personal opinions about how long a client relationship should last has everything to do with my personality and the the way that I've set up my business and my business model and the kind of business I chose. So I don't know if it's chicken or egg, but. Uh, uh, it's, I'm, I'm glad we had this conversation because now I have a, I have a more deep, I have a deeper understanding or at least uh, self-knowledge about what is maybe I would consider a rule of thumb. And now I kind of don't. It's, it's hard to have a rule of thumb on this. And, and the example you gave, and most wealth managers are this way, is that you're dealing with somebody's personal life. You're dealing with their money. You're dealing with, you know, a lot about them. You have uh, access to all sorts of things. And it's a very intimate relationship, which if you're consulting to corporates, it, it's a level of intimacy, you know, times 10. So, so, you know, you have that and, and, and the feelings about it, but it's, uh, you, you were smart to, to get down to what the issue was, right. Which was the relationship between them. And that's the, that's the downside of clients for life is that, you know, it's the same thing with, um, I think you said like a marriage, you know, if you're married for 40 years, you know, I guarantee you've gone through ups and downs and you've had to work through them and the working through it part probably wasn't so much fun, but right. But when you do, you know, the outcome on the other side is terrific provided it matches the way you want to work. That's great point. That's the key. And I I've been working with a, a client who, um, has a business model, very successful, very project oriented. And um, he said, you know, here's the thing. I'd really like to have more recurring revenue. And I said, well, okay, so let's talk about that. And so we looked at the work and 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 what he could do to have recurring revenue. And he said, well, the only problem is he goes, after about three months, I really don't know, even want to talk to these clients. <laughs> Well, maybe that's not a good model for you, do you think? And, you know, we talked it through and he was so frustrated because he saw that recurring revenue model and said, I want that. But he just constitutionally, you know, he was done when they when they were done with the project, the essence of the project. And it was just sort of, you know, this and that kind of like you described in yours, but with a shorter with a shorter duration. He just wasn't interested. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just think it depends on your business model. And if you're a solo or you're leading this business, you know, your personality, what, how do you work best? Yeah, that's recurring revenue might be an interesting conversation for a future episode, because I get a lot of people who come to me who've been, been sort of uh, lucky, maybe getting clients for a few years and then it starts to get hard. And then they're like, geez, this is doing sales and, and marketing is hard. You know what would be great if I was just getting paid every month. <laughs> but like you said, it, it's not like you can necessarily just take what you currently do and figure out a way to charge 
by the month for it. You probably have to come up with something different. And, and perhaps your personality is not a great fit for ongoing client relationships, but maybe you could create some sort of info products or, or uh, some sort of low touch thing that, you know, you don't have to actually deal with people, but it does, <laughs> does bring some stability to your cash flow, right. which of course is important. Well, it goes back to, you know, what is your, uh, your uh, product or service ladder look like? And, mm-hmm. you know, I know in my business, you know, I get asked all the time to do implementation and I'll do a little bit here and there. I mean, obviously, you know, big implementation of getting a brand out, you know, that goes without saying. But in terms of the same thing every month, my business isn't organized to do that. And to do it, I would have to hire some different people, which would be fine, but I would have to supervise them. I would have to spend my time making sure A gets done, B gets done, C gets done. And it's just not interesting to me. I just don't, I don't want to do it. Could I make more money? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but I, I wouldn't have any, any more fun. I would have less fun. And so that makes it an easy decision. Yeah, obviously we're coming from the same, <laughs> like, I like doing what I do. I don't like being a manager. I'm, I'm just, it's just not a skill set that I have. I would still be in a big firm. I mean, you know, the reason that I left is I became a partner and I, I loved doing the work. I loved it. But after a while, what I realized is my day was comprised of sitting in my office and having the t- different client teams from different clients that I managed come in and fill me in on what they were doing. And, you know, I would direct them and I would go meet clients, of course, and talk to them on the phone. But it was really just I was just managing every single day. And after a while, it's not, it's not all that mm-hmm. interesting. Well, so I, I completely agree. Of course, preaching to the choir. <laughs> I've done it. I can do it. I, I don't enjoy it. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, to bring it back, I think this is probably a good time to, to sort of summarize what we're talking about here. I, and I, as with many of the episodes, I have grown. <laughs> You'd think that we would have it all figured out because we're the ones with the microphones, but uh, no. this is so great talking about it because uh, it, it's, it basically boils down to your personality type, the kind of business you want to run, the way you want to organize your products and services. You know How long you should keep a client kind of is a, is a, a factor of all of those things. So mm-hmm. if you're a super high-touch person who just loves getting into it with the intimate details of somebody's life, then yeah, maybe you're the kind of person that should should be working with the same client or client family for generations. That's obviously people do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the, the important thing is just have some self-awareness about where your superpowers are and then craft the, your, the style of your business around that, which would include a reasonable lifespan or life cycle for a client engagement. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really about, it always comes back to knowing yourself and knowing your skill set. And then you create the business and you you hire for the things that you're not good at that still need to get done in this model you've created because you're always going to do some things that aren't fun um, in order to get to do more of what you want. I I just think the key is to do it as strategically as you can. And, you know, and it's a learning experience. You know, you'll you'll make some mistakes with clients. I know I have. And then you learn from that and you go make a new mistake. (laughs) Yeah. All right, cool. Um, is there anything we should add before we wrap up? Um, no, I, I think we kind of we kind of covered that. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. 
I'm Jonathan Stark. And Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next week for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.